We're going to read scripture for us this morning. We're in Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 15. And uh, as we open our Bibles and read, we do so as a continuation of our worship. Worship is not just the songs we sing. It's the whole of our, our lives, and it's certainly the whole of our gathering here this morning. So uh, I will read, and then I will end with, this is the word of the Lord. And as a church, we prayerfully respond, speak, Lord, your servants here. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys can be seated. Well, how are we, family? Good. Uh, if you're a guest with us, welcome to Taproot Church. My name is Mike. I'm one of the, the pastors here and get to open God's word this morning and preach. Uh, but before I get into it, I just have a few announcements for us. Um, just Remember, for, for those of you who've maybe forgotten, our bulletins are, are sitting at the entrance, and we just have one a month. So uh, if you haven't picked one up this month, I'd encourage you to do so. Just a couple of things I wanted to highlight in there. First off uh, is that newcomer's coffee is today. So if you're uh, newish to Taproot Church, whether that be within the last couple of months or whether that be even today, uh, we would invite you to join us after the gathering for newcomer's coffee. Pastor Will is going to lead that. And that's just an opportunity for us to, to get to know you and to share with you a little bit about who Tappert is and why we exist and uh, how we do those things. So we'd uh, love to have you join us. There will be coffee, hence the name Newcomer's Coffee. Um, and then, that, that was not funny, obviously. Um, <clears throat> baptisms. Uh, the bulletin says that baptisms are next Sunday. We've chosen to postpone baptisms, though. So if you were planning uh, or someone you know was planning to get baptized, we just wanted to let you know that there's a postponement on that. We've rescheduled it for May 7th. Uh, and one of the things that we wanted to do with that was um, we've been wanting to try to establish kind of a, a class that... Uh, better establishes us in what baptism is. And so the plan is that there will be a class um, at the end of April for those who are wanting to be baptized. So that, more information will be coming about that. So with that, let's, let's get to this. I'm going to pray for us. <sighs> Father, thank you that we, um, we just thank you that, that you're good always, that you provide above and beyond what we could imagine or even think to ask you. Uh, and so we, we pray that for this next year as we, we have desires and uh, ambitions to, to love this city and this valley well, and it takes resources. Um, but we know that you know that. Uh, we know that nothing is, is beyond you, your ability, your reach. And so we just entrust every single detail of, uh, of what you've called us to do uh, into your hands and uh, so just thank you that you've, you've provided the way that you have, and thank you that we can trust that you're going to continue to do so. Uh, may we be a generous people because of the generosity of Jesus. Uh, I pray that you would just help us this morning as we open your word and get into these um, woes of Matthew chapter 23. I pray that you would just still our hearts and our minds and help us to receive from you. Holy Spirit, we pray that, um, pray that we would be just attentive to your presence this morning, receptive, of how you want to work in and through us and of the, the transformative work that you want to do in our lives uh, and that it would be lasting and sustaining and uh, impactful to this valley around us. Um, let us be a, a people who are just in awe of Jesus and delight in uh, living obedient lives to him, our King. Uh, would you help us this morning? We pray in Jesus' good name, amen. All right, well, uh, Will did a fantastic job last Sunday of opening up here uh, with this chapter. Chapter 23 is big, a big point in the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, most of us are familiar with this. It's the, the woes section of the Gospel of Matthew. And if I could just like summarize really quick what Will said last week, it's this. It's that leadership in God's kingdom is not about the praise and accolades given to us by our peers or the world, 
Rather, kingdom leadership is about humble and sacrificial service. And so what we've seen really since Matthew chapter 21 is, is kind of this steady rebuke being given by Jesus. Uh, it's come primarily through, through parables, uh, but now Jesus gets really specific in, in Matthew chapter 23. And this rebuke, these, these charges are against the religious establishment in, leadership, or in Israel. And so we've seen the, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees who are representative of that leadership community and, and who really are having a massive impact on the people of Israel. The, the people are following their leaders. That's, that's what's expected. And so the whole, the whole of Israel's a, a mess at this point, uh, because their leadership ultimately was taking on a pride in performance. That's what they were concerned about. And, and the way that they acted, it was, it was more about earning notches and praise from people and getting people to fit into particular categories of religion than it was actually about God and his kingdom. And so this is what Jesus is rebuking. It's interesting here, as we're working through this section, we need to note that it's, it's, Matthew wants us to see a sharp contrast in Matthew 23 from various other things that we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew. Right? So for, for example, in verse 4, it says that they tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. Well, that's supposed to draw us to something. What's that supposed to draw us to? Jesus, yes. <laughs> but specifically in, in Matthew 11, right, where what does Jesus say? Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And the picture that you have of Jesus is, is he's, carrying, he's carrying this with us. This is in sharp contrast to the Pharisees and the scribes who aren't even willing to, to lift a finger themselves to do anything. And so the teaching of the, the scribes and Pharisees is essentially it's an anti-kingdom, an anti-Jesus. And so Jesus comes in and uh, rebukes this. Another contrast that we need to see as we enter into the woes is between uh, Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. There, Jesus' first teaching discourse in the Gospel of Matthew is this series of blessings, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, so on and so forth. Well, Matthew 23 is Jesus' final teaching discourse in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's in sharp contrast, obviously, to his first, where his first was blessings. This one is uh, curses, in essence, on the people who are disobeying Yahweh. And so for the next several weeks, this is what we're going to work through. We're going to walk through these woes kind of one at a time or two at a time as we have this morning. Uh, we, you know, we, we're trying to debate uh, Will and I, how fast to move through chapter 23. And it's one of those things where it's like, we could do this in a morning, but that would be a really long morning. Um, and it just, it just seems like we would rush through it. And you know me, I don't see any reason to rush through any part of the gospel of Matthew. So we're going to hang out here for about uh, five or six more weeks <laughs> and, and just work through these woes individually. Um, they're, 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 they're just full. So that's where we're headed. But first things first, uh, we got to set the woes up. Because last, last week's sermon wasn't one of the woes. It was just an introduction to that, right? So Jesus uh, uh, is now speaking specifically to the crowds and to his disciples. Okay, so if we can imagine. And we have to imagine that the Pharisees and scribes are probably there somewhere. They're in the background somewhere. Uh, but his, his target audience, it tells us, is the, the crowds and his disciples. That's who he wants to hear this. Okay? Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with this. One of the first things that we need to see this morning is uh, just the question of where's verse 14? Did anyone notice that? <laughs> Disappeared. <laughs> Some people noticed. Yeah, we read 13 and 15, right? It's because verse 14 is not there. So I just, I thought we would take a moment because a lot of people asked this this last week. They're like, hey, uh, Where's verse 14? And this is actually something we've seen numerous times throughout the Gospel of Matthew, verse just kind of randomly missing. I thought we would take an opportunity to discuss this. Um, so most of our translations don't have verse 14. Some of your translations do. Does anyone have a translation here this morning that does? Yeah? Uh, at, is it King James or NASB or New King James? New King James, NASB. What, what do you have, Carrie? You have verse 14? Spirit-filled Bible. We'll, we'll talk about that. 
Okay, so yeah, most, for the most part, our modern translations don't have uh, verse 14. Uh, generally speaking, the ones that I noticed, King James, New King James, and NASB have it. NASB has it in brackets, which is indicating something for you there. Uh, ESV and CSB, uh, I'm using the CSB this morning, and most other modern translations have footnoted that verse 14 is not there. They've removed it. So what's going on, right? Well, the short of it is that the earliest manuscripts that have been found don't have this verse. So by saying earliest, uh, we would mean like closest to the time of Jesus, right? So Bible, Bible interpretation is, is a really interesting science, really, uh, and it's called uh, bibliology. It's the study of how Scripture came to be. And, and we, are, we understand that, yes, the Holy Spirit uh, has brought this book to us in its form, but he did so through people. And, and what happened throughout the generations is you had your original manuscripts, your original autographs uh, uh, that were written, and those got handed out right, to specific churches. And then what would happen is those would get copied, and those copies would get passed along, and those would get copies and, like, copies and copies and copies and copies and so on and so forth, until you literally, with the New Testament, you have tens of thousands of copies. Right? There, there are more copies of the, this ancient document than there are of any other ancient documents. It's absolutely incredible. So just tens of thousands. I think it's uh, in the 20s, upwards of, of uh, 25,000 copies of various parts of the New Testament that we have. And what's happened is that the, the more digging, in essence, that's been done around the Middle East, uh, the more copies that have been found. And those copies have been dating farther, like closer and closer to Jesus. And what they found is that the earliest copies don't contain this. And so the assumption is, is that somewhere along the lines in the copying to hand out scripture to more people, verse 14 got added now, in that, in that time period, we have to remember that, that verses didn't exist. We, like, we have such convenience with our Bibles, chapter headings, verses, little paragraph sections. Like, it's so convenient. Greek is a mess. Like, if you could just, if you could just imagine a full page of paper with letters, no spaces, no indentation, no punctuation, nothing. It's ridiculous. You look at it, and you're like, oh, I'm done. That's how it worked. Uh, so somewhere along the line, though, that, that verse was added in. Most scholars believe that verse 14 was added at some point in time to line up with Mark and Luke, because Mark and Luke uh, have this phrase in it that Matthew is, is missing. So that's, that's, that's the short of what's happened there. I think uh, what we need to understand when it comes to Bible translation is that our translations are, they're incredible. Like, we can, we can trust that this is the Word of God. And it's an amazing document, and the way that it has been compiled is incredible. The, the, the scholarly research that has gone into it is just amazing. And so our, our, our translations are reliable. They're helpful. We don't have to question about what's going on here. It's just part of the process of how this came to be. And I want to say this, too, that regardless of what our favorite trans- translation might be, so I love the ESV, I love the CSB. I'm probably more and more I'm leaning towards the CSB, right? Because it's actually interesting. The ESV, sorry, I'm going to nerd out for a minute. ESV is, uh, it's written at a 12th grade language or 12th grade reading level. Uh, the CSB is at an 8th grade reading level. And so, no offense, that's more understandable for most of us because uh, culturally, does anyone know culturally what the average reading level of an adult is right now? Well, someone said it, I heard it. Sixth grade. Sixth grade, you can, you know, receive that however you want. Um, but that's just, that's the average. And so I think that's stuff that we have to take into consideration uh, when it comes to our text. And regardless, if you want to be a good student of the Bible, I mean, if you want to be the best student of the Bible, like there's no greater resource than just learning Hebrew and Greek. But I don't know how many of you are signing up for that. Like, it's, it, like it's hard. Uh, but at the very least, what would be beneficial to all of us is to learn how to read from several different translations. Uh, I lo- so I love the ESV, CSB, uh, the NIV, the NLT, the message even. Eugene Peterson was a genius, uh, and he was, he, was a, he was a linguist. Like, so he wasn't haphazardly putting the message together. Uh, was, in his biography, he talks about when he was compiling the Message Bible and how much criticism he was getting about that. And he said, look, if you want to criticize me, let's open up the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic, and we'll talk about it. To which I was like, I'm not going to ask you. I mean, he's dead now. But anyways, 
That's the point. So that's verse 14. If you were wondering, some of you weren't wondering. Now you might be wondering more. I don't know. (laughs) I just thought we would not ignore it. That's all. But by God's grace, we have verses 13 and 15. And so uh, just by way of more setup here, we have to ask, what are the woes and what is hypocrisy? And this is important because uh, Jesus is going to be talking about this for the next several verses, right? Each, each of these sections begins with this phrase, woe to you, you hypocrites. And so if we want to understand Matthew chapter 23, we have to understand why Jesus is addressing them in this way. Okay? And so I want, to, I want to look at what the woes are, why uh, they're here, and then I want to talk a little bit about how Jesus is feeling at this moment. I think that's helpful for us to think through, okay? So first, the woes are Jesus expounding verse 11 and 12, Let's look at verse 11 and 12. It says, The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus, his his rebuke, his most recent rebuke towards the religious authorities was that uh, they enjoyed these places of honor. They enjoyed being called rabbi. They enjoyed taking this position of of father. They enjoyed these authority positions just for the sake of it, just to receive the praise, the accolades from the world around them. And so they were constantly kind of vying for position and authority and trying to get a leg up in their religious community. And Jesus says, this is not the way of the kingdom, Right? The way the kingdom is, is upside down. And so the way that leadership in the kingdom works is, is actually that, that those who would be great must be servants. Leadership in God's kingdom ultimately looks like service. Right? And, and that those who are proud, those who would continually attempt to exalt themselves are actually the ones who are going to be humbled. And so Jesus' admonition to us is that we would humble ourselves. And, and, and ultimately be exalted in the end in God's kingdom. And so every single one of the woes is basically Jesus kind of highlighting how the scribes and the Pharisees are, are doing it the way that they're not supposed to be doing it. How, how their, their words and how their actions are actually anti-kingdom and anti-Jesus, you know, anti-Christ, if you will. So this is what Jesus is doing, first and foremost, expounding verses 11 and 12. Uh, one other note, there's seven of them. This is, and this is just a, an important note for Matthew, because Matthew does this stuff all the time. And it's just in, indicative of the, the fullness, kind of this completion. So you, if you have to have a picture in the Hebrew mind, when they would have had seven woes pronounced against, against them, it's, in, it's indicating a wholeness and a completion and a fullness. And Matthew wants us to catch that, okay? Uh, so second, the woes are Jesus in full prophet mode. I, just, I love this. Uh, what we see, and, and, and I, this is one of those things that I've, I've easily forgotten about as we've spent a lot of time in the Gospel of Matthew, but I think way back in the day when we started the Gospel of Matthew, uh, I think we talked about how what Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus has come to complete or to fulfill the Israel story. Because between, between Matthew and Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, you have kind of this dead space, this kind of incomplete space. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up on the scene, and Matthew portrays him uh, as, as the fulfillment of the completion of the culmination of Israel's story. Okay? And so in this moment, what we have here is, is Jesus in full prophet mode, speaking strong, firm words, calling the people back to repentance. Now, here, let's be clear about what's happening. Jesus is doing this on his own authority, which is unique from any other prophets. Okay, so does everyone remember uh, Pastor Will was up here last week trying to talk about Jesus dropping the mic? He's kind of dancing a little bit and everything. We teased him earlier. Don't worry. It's Okay. Because I skipped, right? I skipped the end of Matthew 22. I didn't skip it. I told, I told Will what to do. <laughs> he, anyways, at the end of Matthew 22, look, look at what it says, verse 41. While the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them, right? So the Pharisees have been asking Jesus questions. Jesus is like, hey, let's switch. I'll ask you a question. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, David's. 
And he asked them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So it's Jesus quoting from Psalm 110. If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? No one was able to answer him at all. And from that day, no one dared to question him anymore. In essence, what Jesus is doing, and this is just a very short, brief summary of this, is that all, he's contrasting himself to the other prophets. Because every other prophet would enter the, the prophetic scene and their words were, thus says the Lord. Right? The role of the prophet was in some way to speak on behalf of Yahweh. Jesus doesn't do this. Jesus doesn't come here saying, thus says the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. Right? These, this, this prophetic stance, this prophetic position that Jesus is taking is, is his own authority. It's his authority as the one who has created all things and the one for whom all things are created. And so Jesus has the authority to do what he's doing here in Matthew chapter 23. And so what we've learned in that is that Jesus is the better king. He's the better priest. Chapters 21 and 22 and 23, he takes up the mantle of the prophet and actually all the way through chapter 25. And the things that Jesus says, really, if we're familiar with our Bibles, they would remind, remind us of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Uh, that's, that's exactly what he's doing. He's taking up the words of Isaiah. He's taking up the actions of Jeremiah. Right? Because in Isaiah, you have, you have just uh, woes. Jeremiah, does anyone know what Jeremiah is known as? The weeping prophet. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But here, here we have to ask, why then is Jesus taking up this mantle? What's the deal, right? Well, in short, Israel has not and is not maintaining covenant faithfulness. And this is, this is, this is the repeated story, is that over and over and over again, they're found to be not faithful to Yahweh. And what's important for us to understand is that, that God communicated clearly to them about what would happen if they were not faithful to him, right? Uh, so just really quick, go back to Deuteronomy, if you have a Bible or whatever, phone. Uh, it's not a real Bible, but it's okay. Deuteronomy 30, in verse 11 I think it's important for us to keep this in mind, right? Um, so much of the Old Testament, so much of the prophetic writings have this as the background. Yeah? And even as we enter into Matthew 23, and especially in Matthew chapter 24, this is what's in the background, okay? So it says this in verse 11, this command that I give you today is certainly not too difficult or beyond your reach, it's not in heaven so that you have to ask who will go up to heaven, get it for us, and proclaim it to us so that we may follow it. And it is not across the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea, get it for us, and proclaim it to us so that we may follow it. But the message is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you may follow it. See, today I have set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. Keep in mind, this is the story of the Bible, right, from, Genesis, from the opening in Genesis, Right? You have a tree of knowledge of good and evil. You have a way of life and death put before you. And so this is just another one of those instances. Verse 16, for I'm commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commands, statutes and ordinances, so that you may live and multiply and the Lord your God may bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not listen and you are led astray to bow and worship to other gods and serve them, I tell you today that you will certainly perish and will not prolong your days in the land that you are entering to possess across the Jordan. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Love the Lord your God, obey him and remain faithful to him. For he is your life, and he will prolong your days as you live in the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're not living up to it. Right? 
And so that's why Jesus enters the scene. Like he, he fulfills what they never could. Jesus fulfills what Israel never could. Jesus fulfills what the leadership could never fulfill. Jesus fulfills what we can never fulfill, right? And so at this point, though, what we, what we have is this group of leaders who, in essence, they've, they've presumed upon their chosen status, and they believe that they can do whatever they want. And they, and they see things like, well, we're Israel. We're God's chosen people. We have the temple. We have all of these things. And Jesus is saying, well, not so fast. Because right? see, here's, here's the role of the prophet. The role of the prophet is to call the people to covenant faithfulness and to warn of impending judgment. This is what Jesus is doing. He's calling them back to covenant faithfulness and he's warning them of judgment that will come if they don't repent. This is chapters 21 through 25. And so in other words, we need to understand that as Jesus is doing this, these woes aren't a shot in the dark. Like Jesus isn't speaking into thin air for some people at some other time. He's speaking very specifically to people right in front of him who have disobeyed the covenant, who have not remained faithful to Yahweh, and he's calling them back to that faithfulness. Yet, because this is how prophecy works, at the same time, they still reveal truth to us today in the church. And so we would do well to listen to the prophet Jesus. Okay. Third, Jesus is, how's, how's he feeling? Okay. How's he feeling? Jesus is feeling sadness and compassion. I think this is important. How, and maybe it's just me, I don't know. When we tend to think of the prophets, how do we think of them? How do you think of them? Fire and brimstone. Yeah, I wrote that down in my notes actually, good. <laughs> Yeah, I think we tend to think of the prophets as angry old guys with beards who are cocked a little bit differently, but have a special connection with God that enables them to see the future. Right? And they're filled with fury. Right? Now, while the sensational ideas of prophecy certainly sell books and movies, <laughs> they're most often not biblical. Right? See, what we need to understand about Jesus and the prophets all the way from Isaiah through Malachi, is that rarely are they enraged or angry the way that we would perceive it. See, I think, I think when we think of this text and Jesus, one of the first images that, that kind of comes to my mind is just like um, an angry dad with his finger pointed telling them that you've just, you're a horrible child. And just kind of like this, this heap of shame. Like, can't, can't you, like, why can't you get it together? Right? But that's not the language. Right? See, the, the word woe, uh, it carries with it the meaning of compassion and regret. Jesus is feeling compassion. Right? Jesus is heartbroken. Jesus' finger is not pointed, but his eyes are damp with tears. Right? This is where Jesus is he's embodying the weeping prophet of Jeremiah. Right? And we know that because of the end of Matthew 23. Right? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this lament. They kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you're not willing. Right? He's weeping. There's sadness in what Jesus is doing here. Right? And so th this is a weeping plea for his people to return, to repent. Right? And so we need, and we need to understand, though, that with the compassion, compassion is not letting people do what they want. I think this is really important because our culture is like, oh, we just got to love everyone. And uh, Compassion is not letting people do whatever they want. That is judgment. Whenever you see in Scripture that God doesn't like act or intervene or it seems like there's just a, a, a distance, it's judgment. Right? Mercy Grace, 
Compassion is a gentle but firm plea to see God and his kingdom as better than our own. And so the religious leaders have established this idea of what kingdom, like they, they thought that they knew what the kingdom should look like, but it was a kingdom of their own making. And Jesus is rebuking that compassionately. And he's pleading with them to see that their kingdom, our kingdoms are inferior to God's. And it's a plea to repent and to see God's kingdom as better. So that's the woes. What's hypocrisy? Just quickly on this one. Uh, the simplest way for us to understand hypocrisy is just this idea of two-facedness, two-facedness, something like that, two faces. It's a theatrical term. Uh, it's the idea of putting on a mask is what it is. And so it's saying one thing but doing another. Uh, one commentator, Leon Morris, he says this. He says, quote, people who act apart it is a word that denies that those so described are sincere. They do what they do for its effect on those who observe them, not because deep down they think of it as right. Okay, so this is what the, the religious leaders are embodying, is this form of hypocrisy. This was their posture. And so as we move on now, once again for us, we need to let these woes wash over us and convict us before we start thinking of who needs to hear this sermon. Because it's so easy to be like, oh, I know who needs to hear this. Make sure they hear the recording. No, you need to hear this. I need to hear this. Right? These need to wash over us. And so with that, let's get into this here. Uh, hypocritical mission. Hypocritical mission. I think these first two rows, two woes, are similar in their emphasis of what I'm just going to call mission this morning. Uh, Bruner, Frederick Bruner, in his commentary, he calls these the woes against false enthusiasm, and that works too. Uh, but to summarize the scenario here, okay, Jesus rebukes the scribes and Pharisees because they were blocking people from entering God's kingdom in favor of essentially getting people into their own. So look at the text again there in verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you don't go in, and you don't allow those entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to make one convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. That's like an odd place to end, right, this morning. I, we, we ended there, and I said, this is the word of the Lord. And some faces were like... That's it? Like, that's where we're ending, huh? Yay. <laughs> so there's two issues going on here. Okay, the scribes and the Pharisees are not in the kingdom themselves. Right? And they're preventing those who want to get in from getting in. And, they want, and then when they go and make a convert, that convert is more a convert to their own brand or version of Judaism than it is to what Yahweh has created and Jesus has embodied. So this is what Jesus is confronting. So let's look more closely at these. First, uh, kingdom, con kingdom prevention, and then we'll talk about zealous conversions. Okay, so this is the makeup of the hypocritical mission. So I think, I think verse 13, first and foremost, should, it should alarm us. Right? Like I hope we read verse 13 and it, it, where it says that they're not in the kingdom and that they're preventing others from getting in that should cause us to just pause and, 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 and assess and analyze and be like, whoa, what is going on here? Right? See, this, this verse, it is an alert to us to the need for, I think, personal assessment, community feedback, and to understand that what we do and say matters. Let's work through these. So first, these leaders would have been astounded that Jesus says that they aren't entering the kingdom. Right? Like, no one would have expected that. They certainly didn't expect that. They're in charge. Like, if, if someone has a Bible question, where do you go? The scribes and the Pharisees. Right? Like, they know. They know how to get there. They know how to get you there. How are they not there? And so they would have been just shocked at Jesus' words, angered at Jesus' words, right? 
because you would have expected that they would have been the ones who are in. But here's, here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is, he's communicating this reality that knowledge, Bible knowledge, family connections, seminary degrees, church attendance, and missional zeal are not what make the kingdom citizen. It's not the accolades. It's not necessarily in and of itself what our culture would tell us a good Christian is. Like, interestingly, I think you can be a really good Christian and go to hell. Right? Like, we can be really good and really nice and really smart and miss the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. And so how should, how should we handle this? Right? And this is, this is where I'm, just so you know, I'm trying to figure out a balance here. My, my, my like, motivating emotion is anger. <laughs> and so I'm trying to not be angry. I want to balance it with, like, Jesus' compassion, compassion. And so compassion would invite us to, to, to ask, what should we do? Right? How, how do we respond to this? And I think, I think it begins with an assessment of, of ourselves. Like, are, are we willing to assess ourselves? To, to ask, like, hard questions about what our motives are. To ask hard questions about, what, like, what are we doing here this morning? It's beautiful outside. You do so many other things. Get some stuff done. Make some money. Are we willing to assess what our motives are, though? There's a couple of passages in Scripture that I think help us with this. The first is uh, 2 Corinthians. And these, these are just some passages that encourage us to do this, to do this assessment. So 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, uh, just says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you? Now, I love that. Because what Paul is saying, Paul doesn't give you a checklist, that, like, the assessment is Jesus Christ is in you. Right? That's the transformative reality. Jesus Christ is in you. That's Paul's emphasis throughout the whole New Testament, all of his letters. It's this in Christ reality. One other text, Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 12 through 18. Listen to what this says. It says, Therefore, my dear friends... Just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world." By holding firm to the word of life, then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Now, this text kind of puts a little bit more flesh on it, I think. Uh, Paul tells the Philippians to, to assess, right? To work out your salvation with fear and trembling knowing that God is working in us and that God is producing fruit in us. One of those fruits being that you shine like stars in the world. I love that. Like, as, a, as a collective whole here, as a collective witness, what do we look like when we assess the life of Taproot? Are we shining like stars in the world? I don't know. And so there's the individual communal aspect here. But when you assess yourself, what do you see? Right? Or what is your motive? What do you, what do you lean on? Are, are, you, are you navigating your checklist? Or are you like, Christ in me? Christ in me. Right? Now here's, here, here's where this might get a little bit more challenging. Are you willing to invite community feedback? Like, what would your brothers and sisters say about your life in Christ? I don't know, that, that would be, I dare you. 
And then like, how do you receive that uh, non-defensively? Now note, this kind of assessment, it's not about doing more and doing more better. I think more than anything, it's about assessing our own areas of pride, right? Areas of pride. So then second, what we do and say matters. Okay, so the, the leaders are astounded that they're not entering the kingdom, right? even though they're Bible scholars. Bible scholars. The second thing Jesus says here is that what we do and say matters. Okay? And just, again, look at verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you don't go in and you don't allow those entering to go in. Those, those are weighty words. Weighty words. And it, these are the words that we're intended to let wash over ourselves. Like, in a point of asking, like, Lord, where am I shutting the kingdom of heaven in people's faces? Lord, where am I not allowing those who would want to go in to not go in? Lord, what, what am I potentially putting in people's way? Bruner, he says this about this verse. He says, quote, a way to slam the kingdom door in people's faces is to live loveless lives by binding people to human traditions rather than to God's true law, to obscure the pure center with trivia and minutia. In other words, here's how this maybe works itself out. Um, we can present ourselves in an arrogantly pious and religious way that's actually a turnoff to Jesus and his kingdom. Right? It's, I don't know, we've all been around the person. Maybe you are the person. Maybe, maybe I'm the person. I don't know. We've all been around the person, right? Who, it, it's the person who's just, um, they're just always Right? And no one else is. Right? It's the person who's, who's never pleased. It's the person who no one is ever good enough for. No one ever measures up to their own narrow ideas of what the kingdom should look like. This person uh, is more concerned about denominational distinctiveness than they are the diverse nature of God's kingdom. And at least a couple of commentators pointed out that this, what the Pharisees are doing here, this is the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's people are ready, people hear Jesus, they hear of Jesus, they want to follow Jesus, but the religious people need it to look a certain way. They need it to follow a certain formula, a certain script. They need you to get your, your theological I's dotted and your T's crossed. Um, just so you know, when, when we meet Jesus face to face, he's not going to give you a pop quiz. Now, I, I love knowledge. I love, I love reading. I love doctrine. I love it. I don't think Jesus is going to ask me a single question around it other than whether or not I recognize that he's Lord and King. Right? And so, like, your entrance into the kingdom is not based upon whether or not you have a, a comprehensive understanding of the Trinity. Right? You're like, oh, praise the Lord. It's not about whether or not we've gotten our end time scheme put together. It's not about whether or not you have our doctrine statement memorized. How many of you know our doctrine statement? Me neither. <laughs> we wrote it a while ago. It's cool. <laughs> right? these, these performances are not what it's about. Right? It's not about these, these distinctives. It's not about a formula. It's not about a script. It's not about getting people to look a certain way. Right? So in, in Scripture, the way that we see this, some examples would be the Judaizers. Right? So as Paul's going and planting churches uh, throughout the world, 
these people, Jews, uh, they, they're called the circumcision party in some of our older translations. Uh, they come around, they come behind Paul, and they're telling people that, no, what Paul said is not accurate. You need to add these things onto the gospel. And, and namely, it was the, a very particular form of obedience to the law, and it was circumcision. And Paul's like, no, it's not it. It's, it's the gospel. That's it. It's just Jesus. And the Judaizers are like, well, maybe Jesus, but certainly Jesus plus a whole lot of other things. And their, their effort was to get people to fit into this particular box. I think a current day example would be this. Here's, uh, I'm sure most of you have heard about the, the revival going on, right, in Kentucky. Anyone? No? Okay. Well, there's a, currently right now at Asbury College in Kentucky, uh, there's a, a prayer, essentially a prayer meeting that's been going on since, well, for 10 days now, 11 days, something like that. And it started with a sermon. Some guy preached a 30-minute sermon. And, and he concluded his sermon by calling people to repentance. And stuff is happening. Like the, the, the chapel is full. And it's been full for 10 days straight. More than that now. I'm not sure exactly. And there's pictures, and people are wanting to get in. Here's, here's what's frustrating. I'll, I'll be honest. I'm, I'm as much a skeptic as anyone. I'm, my, like, my first inclination when I hear about revival is to be like, urch, what's happening? But the thing of it is, is you look at it, and there's, there's nothing weird happening. Like, it was a mediocre sermon at best. It wasn't spectacular. There wasn't any emotional manipulation. There wasn't anyone locking the doors to keep people in. It's just normal. But here's, here's, what, here's, what the, here's what this whole kingdom prevention thing might look like. Go just peruse social media. Don't, but just say you did. And over and over and over again, what you'll find are just accusations about how it's false. I mean, I, like, literally the other day I read one guy and it was just like 14 points about what was probably wrong with this. And in my mind, that, that's, that's kingdom prevention. Like that's people who want Jesus and other people are saying, no, it doesn't look quite right. It's not fitting my denominational box and so it's obviously not true. Jesus says, woe to you, scribe, Pharisee, you hypocrite. So here's a question to ask here, is do our actions and words line up with our kingdom or God's? Right? Let's just assess that. Okay, part two, zealous conversions. There in verse 15, just read it again. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. Ah. Like that should give you chills in some way, shape, or form. Right? So missionary activity had its ups and downs among the Jews. Uh, there was an expectation for the nations to be welcomed into Judaism. Anyone know where that comes from? Genesis. <laughs> like the whole story has been about the nations receiving the promises of God. Right? And that wasn't happening now, at this point in time, there are debates as to how active missionary uh, enterprises were among the Jews, but we know, at the very least, there was some little bit of activity, and Jesus is not happy about it. You see, not all mission is good mission. Listen to what Bruner says about this. He says, quote, Jesus' second woe should guard the church against confusing missionary zeal with divine truth. This woe is valuable to the church because she is always tempted to look at the missionary outreach and church growth of certain groups and to think that these can only be explained by God's blessing and the group's dedication. But falsehood shares with truth a remarkable missionary zeal. 
Guilt is as motivating as gratitude. The false spirits are sometimes more active than the Holy Spirit. I think that's hyperbolic in Bruner's language. I think we can understand that. But it gets at the heart of what is happening here. Jesus' rebuke is that the scribes and the Pharisees are more concerned about converting people to their own version of Judaism than they are to the kingdom of God. And the thing is, is they're doing a great job. They're having success. They're making converts. People are joining the team. And not only that, but they're making converts who are more zealous than they themselves are. That's the idea of Jesus' language when he says that you're making them twice as much a child of hell as you are. It's like they're, they're doubly zealous about what they've just learned and converted to. Right? It's like the new baby Christian. It's like has way more zeal than the Christian who's been a Christian for 20 years, usually. Right? It's kind of that picture. And so it looks good on a resume, but Jesus despises it. You see, activity and size is not equivalent to authenticity and truth. And I think this plays itself out today in the easy believism version of Christianity that's been being peddled around now, primarily since the days of George Whitfield. And uh, and honestly, yeah, this is like a this is a thing for me. Like the whole the whole the sinner's prayer. Like, how many of you have said the prayer 20 times, <laughs> right? I, I, think, I think this is getting at it. It's, it's preventing people from being in the kingdom because we've told them the lie that the sinner's prayer is what saves them. But we need to understand that the sinner's prayer is not equal to loyalty to Jesus, right? There, there's, the gospel is, is robust, The teaching of the kingdom is robust. And and I know I'm not trying to discredit. I said the prayer, guys, a lot. (laughs) I don't think it's what got me saved. Like I I, it was I I, that's just my own personal experience. And maybe for you it's different. Maybe you're like, I said it and I was done for Jesus. Boom, forever. I think I think it stuck for me like the hundredth time or something. Like, I don't know. And so this is just a form of what this kind of hypocritical mission and zeal might look like. We might be so zealous to get people into the kingdom that we make it as easy as possible, but then we don't actually teach them about being a follower of Jesus. And if that's the case, then we've missed the point. So that, we have to ask the question, well, what is authentic mission? Okay. How how do we not hinder people from entering the kingdom? And how do we see people converted to Jesus and not just some tribal distinctives? And here, here's, here's an admonition for us, a question that I want to ask us, Taproot. Are we living sent lives? We're all on board for mission. Right? Like we gather here to be equipped, to be encouraged, to be admonished, to be invited into repentance, uh, but then to be sent. Every single week, we are gathered and scattered people. We are living sent lives as disciples of Jesus. And see, this is important. I want us to understand our framework, our our. Our language here is important. So we need to understand that we're disciples. This is our identity. To be a disciple, that's that's who we are. We're apprentices to King Jesus. We are learning the way of Jesus. And as disciples, we are all living sent lives, that is on mission, if you will, as ministers of reconciliation. That is what the mission is. That's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we're ministers of reconciliation. And let's understand that's all of us, every single one of you, as a disciple of Jesus, is in full-time ministry. Our ministries are not what happens here. I mean, that might be part of it. It's not some specific, like, niche, niche, however you say that, thing. 
It's, it's the whole of our existence as disciples. We're always ministering, right? To make new disciples of Jesus, right? I think it's very important for us to understand Jesus' words in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples, teaching them to obey, obey to observe all that I have commanded you. Discipleship is the key. That is the mission. And so what does this look like? Well, three characteristics. First and foremost, it's committed to the gospel. Right? Committed to the gospel for ourselves and for others. See, we understand, we believe that the gospel is the good news about what God has accomplished through Christ. It's the good news. It's the culmination of which his, um, with his ascension to the throne, that he is Lord and King. It's, it's that he has done in our place what we could not do. And it's the good news that we need day in and day out. Right? See, the gospel is not just for one moment in the past. The gospel is what we must come to every single day. This is what our identity, this is what our life is rooted in. This is what we must be committed to. Furthermore, this humbles us and it levels the playing field. I love, I love Will's illustration last week. Like, Jesus is the senior pastor. Our org chart is Jesus and everyone else. Like, it's not even Jesus, elders, deacons, members, non-members. Like, we could really org chart this thing out. It's not that. It's just Jesus and everyone else. Because of the gospel. And now, by grace, through faith, we receive this salvation. We don't earn it. And we live out our lives in allegiance to him. Right? Authentic mission is first and foremost committed to this reality. Second, it's committed to the process of discipleship. And to contrast that, not just to the moment of conversion. Because here, here's, here's why. We trust that God converts people in his timing and in his way. Right? I don't have that power. I don't have power to change hearts. Do you have power to change hearts? You should say, no. Good, we're on the same page. All right. God converts people in his timing and in his way. We do not do this. It isn't our responsibility. God can handle it. Like, just so you know, God can handle saving people. He's been doing it for a lot of years. He'll continue doing it for years to come. We get to be faithful to the process of discipleship, which oftentimes just looks frustrating, just so you know. It's up and down. It's messy. It's, it's squishy. It feels like it sometimes lacks like clear boundaries or, or lines. Sometimes it's like, man, they're so dedicated and love Jesus. They're following Jesus. And other times it's like, I don't think they're saved. How many, like, how about that for yourself? Have you ever woken up recently? You're like, I don't even know if I'm saved anymore. <laughs> I have. Right? Discipleship is, is a process, and we're committed to this. Authentic mission is committed to this process. Yet, all the while, guess what? We still call people to repentance. You see, repentance is another one of those aspects. It's not a one-time thing. I think, it was, I think it was Martin Luther who said, Luther or Calvin, I don't know, some reformer, that re repentance is it's the whole of the Christian life. Daily, day in, day out, turning to Jesus. And so we call people to repentance. We call ourselves to repentance. But of course we have to understand what repentance is, right? So what, what is it? I found a really good definition uh, Michael Lawrence, he, uh, he wrote a little book for, um, for Nine Marks called Conversion. And this is what he says. He says, repentance, I love this, repentance is not the same thing as moral resolve. His point is this, is that we can resolve to do good. We can resolve to be really good people but not be repentant. So it's not moral resolve, Real repentance is a new worship. 
It looks like a changed life, but that changed behavior results from a change of worship, not the other way around. Repentance is being convicted by the Holy Spirit of the sinfulness of our sin, not the badness of our deeds, but the treachery of our hearts toward God. Repentance means hating what we formerly loved and served, our idols, and turning away from them. Repentance means turning to love God whom we formerly hated and serving him instead. It's a new, deepest loyalty of the heart. See, and this is, this is then true faith. It's, it's this picture of loyalty or allegiance to Jesus It's a life of commitment to King Jesus. It's loyalty to God because of the faithfulness of Jesus. And true repentance will produce fruit over time. Like, just so so we know, like, the fruits of the Spirit, we're not, like, knocking those out of the park all the time. Right? (laughs) Maybe not even some of the time. It's more like, one at a time. Like, I'm going to focus on kindness for a little bit. I'm going to focus on self. Like, like I can't handle however many there are. And God is gracious in that. God is gracious in that process. And our role as disciples is to walk with other people through that process. Embracing the messy reality. Um. So who are we preventing and why and how? Are we, are we holding up theological accuracy? Are we aiming for immediate fixes in morality? See, often we're just uncomfortable. But because of the gospel, what we understand, what we believe is that our confidence is in Christ. And this enables us to befriend the sinner like Jesus did. You see, when the Gospels tell us that Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, guess what it meant? He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. When it tells us that he, he befriended the prostitutes, that they, they felt welcomed in his presence, it's because they did. And often where, where we go, where I myself go, is like those people, whoever those people are, they make me uncomfortable. And so if they could just get a little bit better, if they could just kind of clean up their act a little bit more, think a little differently, act a little differently, then we'd be good to go. I think Jesus would say, woe to you. See, our confidence in Christ enables to be a non-anxious presence around whoever, (laughs) because their issues aren't going to rub off on us, because we're in Christ. That's our confidence. That's our hope. that's That's our reality. And so because of that, we entrust the process to God, regardless of the mess, and we love God and neighbor. Finally, it's committed to the space and place that God has us in. Here, I just want to say, we need not go anywhere. God has placed us here for a purpose. God has placed you in Twin Falls, in the Magic Valley, in this time, for a purpose. See, there are people all around us who are in need of Jesus. And we have been tasked to be a faithful witness to our King. Here's here's how Paul says it. I'll just, I'll read it. In Acts chapter 17, he says, I didn't mark this one, so I got to get there. Sorry. He says this. says in verse 22, Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. He's gracious to all people. 
From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So I love that text, right? That God God has placed us here for, for this time, for this moment, And some of us might leave and go someday. That's fine. But I think let's not miss the mission that he has put right in front of us. Let's not miss that we have been called to seek the flourishing of this place. Let's not miss that that we, we have the gospel. We have the kingdom. And we are being sent from here today, now, to go and make much of Jesus. We are to be a collective witness, both portraying and speaking of the work that God has and is doing in us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would transform our lives, that you would enable us to enjoy the process of being a disciple and making disciples, that you would help us to patiently, kindly, lovingly walk around, be with people like ourselves and people who are difficult, make us uncomfortable, but people who are looking for Jesus. May we, may we not be putting needless religious boundaries in front of your kingdom. I pray that you'd help us to, to point to Jesus and to invite people to follow Jesus. And I pray this morning that, that you would just prompt in us repentance where it is necessary and that we would be just delighted in your goodness and your grace, Jesus. It's in your good name that we pray, amen.